the same way that you know cities of the last century were built around cars, we believe cities of the next century will be built around the internet, and internet native cities are going to be geographically distributed. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to another episode of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today, I'm joined by John Hillis, the founder of Cabin City, one of the first decentralized cities in existence. During this episode, John and I discuss what it actually means to be a decentralized city and the idea behind it, the overlap of remote work and Web3, and why over the next 20 years we'll see a dramatic shift in the way we live. But before we jump into the interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word, and you can also read some example newsletters there so you know what you're signing up for. Also, I'd like to thank Safety Wing for sponsoring the show. Their travel and medical insurance is specifically designed for digital nomads and remote companies. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're creating for you later in the episode. As always, if you haven't subscribed or left a review already, please consider doing so now. Just hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcasting app and you will never miss any new episodes and you will help us climb the charts and attract new listeners. I've also made it really easy for you to leave a review. You can either do so straight in your app right now or head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and leave your review there when you get to your computer. Finally, I'd like to invite you to join our TRL listener Slack channel, which you can find at thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. This is something new that I'm launching as a way to connect with listeners of the show like you. I'm doing this for a few reasons. Number one, I'd love to learn more about the types of content you'd like to see more of from the podcast, but I'd also like to add more value to you. In our Slack channel, you'll be able to have direct contact with me, meet other listeners of the show passionate about the future of work, the digital nomad lifestyle, and entrepreneurship, and we'll be putting together events and Q&As with some of our biggest podcast guests to dive in even deeper with them. Access to the Slack channel is completely free. And again, the link where you can join is thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with John Hillis. All right, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So, okay, I'm going to start off in a bit of, of a broad uh, point here. So, I was looking at your bio, and you are currently working on a project called Cabin, uh, which is a decentralized city for online creators, which we're going to talk uh, a lot more about. But you're also uh, the founder of Capital Community, which invests in autonomous individuals collaborating in decentralized communities. So we'll talk a lot more about that as well. But continuing on, you used to be the director of product for uh, Instacart. 
uh, and that you now lead the Carrot Angels Syndicate, uh, where you're reinvesting in Scar Community. So all of these things on their own sound uh, really incredible and very, very interesting. And you've kind of done all of that. So I'm going to start, like I said, very broad and ask you the question of how did you end up in the position that you are now? Uh, how is it that you came to work on all of these different projects that are also interesting on their own? Wow. Uh, yeah, certainly a broad question. Um, th thank you. It's uh, th There's probably a lot of ways to answer that, but uh, since you asked a broad question, I'll give you a broad answer, which sort of Perfect. goes all the way back to the, the beginning. Um, you know, when I was a, a, a kid, um, I have a distinct memory of the first time that my older brother sat me down in front of our compact desktop computer and uh, showed me the internet. I believe the first website he showed me was AltaVista, um, which for all you kids out there was a search engine before Google existed. Um, and uh, it, I just, I, I have a distinct memory of that and of, you know, then just being immediately interested in what I could do with this thing. Um, and I took a couple different paths. Uh, you know, one of the first things I started doing was I, I got some uh, architecture software that would allow you to make floor plans and do 3D renderings and started spending a lot of time playing around with that, designing, uh, you know, houses for my babysitters and stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, got really interested in, in online communities as well. Um, and throughout middle school and, and into high school, um, was an active participant in uh, early Reddit um, and Dig, which was sort of a precursor to Reddit, um, as well as like online forums, like the, the Science Olympiad message boards. Um, uh, and, you know, I think um, was, was just really enamored by the idea that you could sort of borderlessly meet people from uh, not just where you lived, but anywhere in the world online. Um, and then, you know, went to college and, and uh, got really interested in um, both political science and environmental studies, uh, started studying some, some of Eleanor Ostrom's work that, that is really the precursor to DAOs and um, read a lot of American nature writing, became enamored with um, uh, Thoreau and um, Edward Abbey and others that were writing about this sort of tension between um, technology and nature. And, um, you know, I, I just feel uh, very fortunate that a lot of those strands have, have woven themselves together into what I get to work on now. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't feel like an obvious path you know, as I was going through it, um, you know, I, I left uh, college and, and knew that I wanted to move out to the Bay Area and get involved in um, the technology scene happening there. Um, you know, did, got together with some college friends and did a startup that was um, an early uh, sort of proto token gated community uh, in like 2014 when nobody wanted to do token gated communities or be a part of, of paying for communities. Um, everybody was like, you know, we have Facebook and it's free. Um, so, you know, did that for a while and then ultimately realized like I, I wasn't really ready to um, start a company or an organization and needed to learn a lot more about how it worked within existing uh, companies. And so I ended up um, 
basically making a list of all of the early stage startups that I thought were interesting, hand delivering my my resume to their offices and really trying to like lean into the idea that um, you know, you, you should just get on a rocket ship and not ask which seat. I ended up taking a, a, an early, pretty grueling operational role at Instacart that um, had me working like 16-hour days trying to manage all of the logistics in real time before we had systems to do that. And um, then, you know, eventually um, was able to grow into a, a product leadership role there. Um, and, you know, at some point realized that I'd learned a whole lot through that experience, but I really wanted to get back to the things that I found most meaningful in the world. Um, I was pretty burnt out, ended up going to hang out on a, a little island off the uh, coast of Thailand for a little bit and uh, figure out Classic. what I wanted to do with my life. Classic move, <laughs> would highly recommend. Um, yeah, did a lot of journaling and life exploring and sort of realized that I had this rough direction I wanted to go in to start tying together all these life pieces I'd mentioned earlier um, and still didn't know what it was going to look like, but at least knew I should probably go build a cabin in the woods and start inviting internet friends out to it and, you know, see, see where that took me. Yeah. You know, you early on, you mentioned uh, two things that I want to kind of circle back to. Uh, the first was Alta Vista and it's crazy because I'm I'm a bit too young to have actually used Alta Vista. But one thing that I did realize was that so I immigrated my family uh immigrated to the United States when I was 10 in in 2004 roughly. And I I remember my dad saying that this was like right before kind of like Google really peaked or was like or really came to dominate as much of search as it does now because my dad was trying to search Cincinnati using Alta Vista. And was like not getting any results because he was misspelling it. And I realized that we are maybe one of the last waves of immigrants that came to a place without having a lot of information at our hands about that place. Because if you think about it now, not that immigration is easy, but you can like Google everything about it. You can go to Google Maps and like see like the exact place where you're going to be living in. You can like look at it on Instagram places and all these things. And it's just crazy just how much things have changed in, you know, like 16 years, which is not 16, 18 years, however long it's been, which doesn't sound like that long, but at the same time, like it's had a huge change. And the other thing that you mentioned is a DAO. Okay. And so I want to, I, I feel this is a concept that doesn't keep coming up over this interview. So I want to kind of like set the, the, the scene now. Can you explain to people that are listening who maybe have not heard that term before, or who maybe have heard the term before, but haven't really done the research to really understand what it is? What actually is a DAO? Yeah, um, it's, it's a good question because there's not a, a simple answer. Um, I think what you'll find is that a lot of people define DAOs in different ways. Um, the acronym itself uh, is Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Um, it's a term that was originally coined, I believe, by Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum in the original Ethereum white paper. Um, and, you know, you, you can sort of take each of those words individually and, and unpack them. Um, so, you know, decentralized, uh, typically these are organizations that are using some sort of um, collective decision-making approach that is different from the way that, um, you know, companies or other organizations typically operate in a more centralized hierarchical way. Um, 
autonomous, which, uh, you know, I think in the original Vitalik sense of the word, um, actually probably had more to do with the fact that, um, you know, he was imagining a world where you had organizations built on blockchains that were executing smart contracts. Um, that is one version of autonomy. I think it's also been interpreted more recently to mean autonomy of local pockets of um, control and execution within the organization. And then organization, um, which actually he um, originally considered the term and, and actually described several different terms, including a DAC, a decentralized autonomous corporation, and then sort of generalized it to um, O organization um, because, uh, you know, the, these things are not necessarily um they can look like corporate entities. They can also look more like governments. Um, and so that's maybe a bit of like a, a technical answer to parse apart the words. I think when people actually talk about DAOs, what they're really referring to usually is some type of digital cooperative, some type of organizational structure that allows people on the internet to come together and usually using underlying blockchain technologies, coordinate and use that um uh, use the coordination tools available um, via blockchains to do things together, to pool resources and to make decisions and to um, actually, you know, make uh, things happen in the real world as a result of their community, which is a big difference from how the internet has worked for the past few decades where, um, you know, you could go on a, a Reddit forum and, you know, ship posts with your friends, but you couldn't actually take that next step and, and turn it into uh, real coordinated action using real resources. Can we kind of like double click on this concept a little bit? Because, you know, I, I often speak with like my parents about crypto or, or uh, my parents-in-law about it. And I try to like explain what it is, but it's really hard to bridge that gap of like, understanding like legitimate use cases and how it can be applied like realistically. So can you kind of like, you know, expand on that concept and like, what are some use cases of DAOs and, and how do they allow you to do things now that you couldn't before in a web two world? Sure. Yeah. It's definitely a really hard thing to explain, um, particularly to people who haven't been deeply immersed in this world. And um, it, it, you know, I think there's sort of like a, a, something that people describe that have become immersed in Web3 that is often, they use the analogy of sort of like going down the rabbit hole or through the looking glass. Um, and it really is, it's like a change in world perspective that you kind of have to make in order for all of these things to make sense. Um, and that change in world perspective at its core, I think is really about the idea of private key management of resources. So in the pre, you know, web three world, basically, um, you know, in order to have shared resources, you had to put them into a bank or, you know, some sort of entity that was operated by a third party. You had to trust that that third party was going to um, hold on to your resources and then have all sorts of like, bureaucratic layers and processes in place for people to access those resources. And what DAOs unlock at a very basic level is just that you don't need any of that anymore. Um, you can set up a shared wallet, which is you know basically just a place 
um, that's represented on chain. It's essentially just on the internet that can hold actual assets, can hold money, can hold um, you know uh, NFTs or, or you know tokens that represent things in the world. And then you can have multiple people that can use those assets together. Um, so it's a DAO wallet. To... The DAO actually yeah, exactly. owns the wallet. Okay. Yeah. So an example of this, the most common example is is called a multi-sig wallet. And a multi-sig wallet, multi-signature wallet is just a way for um, you, know, you to set up a, a pool of money that a group of people can collectively execute transactions on. Um, and that's actually a pretty novel thing. What it's essentially saying is like, it's it's like this digital representation of a way for a group of people to pool resources and to use them together, which is not something that we've really had before without involving, you know, external trusted third parties. And so how does this then connect to creator cabins, creative cabins, right? Because this is the project that you're currently working on. I know that it, it is operated through a DAO. So can you you know, when I when I in the intro said that cabin, it's a decentralized city for online creators. Can you first explain uh, what that is and like what the idea there is as a whole, and then we can talk about how it's operated through a DAO. Yeah, definitely. So you know, we get a lot of questions about um, about what DAOs are and and you know why we're a DAO. Um, the fact that we're a DAO is like probably one of the less interesting parts of what we're doing. It's like, you know, it's like if, if every podcast, like the opening set of questions for a company was about like their legal structure and like, you know, um, the like specific, uh, you know, way that their C Corp is set up and, you know, it just like, that stuff is important. It's really important. Um, but it's not like the kind of core reason why we're doing what we're doing. It's the tools we're using to do what we're doing. Um, and so the reason we use those tools is is because they're useful for the purposes that I just described and primarily that it's useful for governance. So when we started um, you know, this organization, we started it out with a uh, um, you know basically asking a group of people on the internet to contribute um, you know, essentially, uh, some, some money to a residency program that, you know, was just, there, there was nothing more than that. It was just like, Hey, we're going to create this, um, token, which represents your ability to vote on who gets to come out for residencies. Um, and that's a great use case for, um, you know, for web three structures and for DAOs is to create a simple governance mechanism that, anybody in the world can access, um, you know, that doesn't need some sort of like complex uh, infrastructure or third parties to like verify the votes or anything like that. It's a very native way to use the tools. Um, and that's how we started using it. And now, um, you know, we've evolved our governance structure several times and um, we were, were able to use those tools for a broader range of things. Um, but that's not the goal. Right? That's just the mechanism. The goal itself is that we're building this network of neighborhoods. We're building this uh, network of places across the world that is this decentralized or network city. And that's that's really what the DAO is, is the network of neighborhoods and the underlying governance structures that allow us to 
manage that network. So to ask a, a clarifying question, because I've never quite, I, I've heard the term decentralized city before, right? Or we have like Balaji's book, The Network State, right? Like this is like a, um, a terminology or an idea that's been floating around for a few years. But one of the things that I noticed that you said was you have neighborhoods. So is the idea there that the city itself is kind of like in the cloud and then the physical representation of it are these neighborhoods that in a regular city, neighborhoods might be physically right next to each other. But in this idea, the neighborhoods would be in different parts around the world and are then connected through this kind of like cloud net, a network city. Is, is that, is that how exactly you're using it. those terms? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So when I, I wrote an essay maybe 18 months ago called called Decentralized Cities um, that explored some of these ideas. And at the time, it, um, I didn't mean decentralized as in Web3 or DAOs or any of that. What, what I meant was decentralized in exactly the way you're describing it, which is that, um, you know, we don't have to have our cities of the future all be in one place. It's a very... Uh, you know, 20th century idea. <laughs> and, and before that, um, you know, that, that cities sort of are big monolithic entities that are in one geographic location. And now it's easy to meet people online and then get together IRL. And uh, what a city is at its core is people with a shared culture, economy, governance structure. Um, we now have the tools to have that um, you know, not all be in one place. And in the same way that, you know, cities of the last century were built around cars, we believe cities of the next century will be built around the internet and internet native cities are going to be geographically distributed. Mm, God, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about what cabin actually is. So we talked a little bit about this idea of decentralized cities. We talked about how it functions, but what have you actually done? Because I, you have land now in Texas where you're building these cabins. Let's start with how did you initially get the, the funding to actually buy this land? Was that something that was raised through this sort of process or was it money that you like came up with? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, something that separates, there's, there's a fair number of projects out there right now that are sort of like interested in this space and in building new types of cities and in, in decentralized cities. Um, I think we're, we're probably the one that is furthest along in terms of like at what we've actually built. Um, and, and we try to both dream big and, and think big about the future, but also be very grounded in reality. So um, I'm sitting in one of the cabins, you know, right now, uh, this is where I live. And uh, we're out in the Texas Hill Country, like, like you mentioned. Um, moments ago, I was just up the hill uh, with Charlie, our builder in residence right here at Neighborhood Zero. And we were literally, you know, mapping out infrastructure lines for um, some new cabins and bathhouses we're working on. And so, um, you know, uh, it's not, it, it, I find it to be really fun, but I, I wouldn't call it glamorous work, right? We're, we're literally like, you know, digging trenches in the ground. Um, and that's what it takes to actually build a city. Um, and so we, we try to stay, no pun intended, you know, very grounded uh, in, in our approach. Um, but to, to answer your question, you know, something that um, I think makes us relatively unique in this space is that um, we believe we're building this network of neighborhoods. And um, we believe that it's important for each of those neighborhoods to be independent, autonomous, local entities. 
And um, we believe that's an important aspect of the sort of topology of DAOs is that they um, are not monolithic structures, but they're these locally owned operated entities that are then stitched together into a network. Um, and so this place that we're out, uh, you know, here in the Texas Hill Country, we, we call Neighborhood Zero. It's our first neighborhood, as the name would imply. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, started this neighborhood uh, with, with, you know, essentially um, money from my past work. I was very fortunate to be at a, a rapidly growing, you know, startup and, and was in a number of leadership roles. And so when I left, I, I had some financial resources and I, I basically poured, uh, you know, all of those resources into getting this project off of the ground. Um, but that's not the only way that, that neighborhoods get started. Um, you know, we are, uh, very interested in helping groups of people start new neighborhoods and a typical process for that might be that, you know, a squad of people, a handful of people who maybe met online, maybe know each other in person, um, you know, get together and, and decide that they want to kick off a project like this. There's usually a caretaker, somebody who's sort of really spearheading the project and a group of other folks who are um, involved in helping get it off the ground. Um, and then they own and, and operate this entity, um, you know, as part of this broader network. So when you have, you know, in kind of looking at the, uh, at the website of, of Cabin, it seems like there's two different sort of people or, or users, right? You have the people who are in the DAO who are the, you know, they have like the voting rights. They're they're sort of contributing to like how this is run and built and that sort of thing. And then you have the residents who are actually the people who are coming into the cabins to stay there to, you know, be part of the community. How do those two interact? Is it something like where if you buy a pass and you come stay for some amount of time, uh, at neighborhood zero, you get some of those voting rights, or is it like how does that work, and 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 where are those d- roles differentiated or separated? Yeah, so we um, we think of it, you know, as essentially uh, a couple different roles within the cabin network, and anybody can be a part of any of the roles and not a part of other roles or a part of all of them. They're um, you know they're not uh exclusive of each other um so there are uh you know probably the most important role is the the neighborhoods themselves and the caretakers of those neighborhoods the people who really want to build these properties and operate them um you know that's what what makes up the core of the network um the you know second group of people is the residents the people who um come and co-live in our network get a co-living pass and then either live in one of the neighborhood locations or travel around to different neighborhood locations. Um, and then, you know, there are the, um, uh, the token holders who are people who, again, could be uh, caretakers and neighborhoods, could be residents, could be none of the above. Um, they are the people who, um, you know, help govern the network. Um, and there are contributors, which are the essentially service providers to the network, the people who are doing work on behalf of the DAO. Um, and, you know, those are sort of the, the different stakeholder groups within 
within our network. And, you know, some people like, for instance, I'm an example of somebody that falls in all of those groups. <laughs> um, there are other people that may just be in one of those groups and, and not in other groups. I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Safety Wing. As a longtime digital nomad and remote worker, I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important. The more time you spend abroad, the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen. Maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor, or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love Safety Wing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. The Remote Health Package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that SafetyWing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you you. And also consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to Safety Wing for sponsoring us. And now back to the episode. So, you know, when you, when you talked about the importance of being autonomous, right? It, it, uh, this organization being self-sustainable in some way where each one of these neighborhoods is self-sustainable. Uh, finances are a part of that. So is the primary way that one of these neighborhoods makes money through providing these sort of like co-working, uh, like co-living co-working passes? Is that like the main product through which they generate revenue? Yeah. So that's the, you know, the intention is that um, the way that we can help grow more of these neighborhoods and help them become financially sustainable, um, you know, is by, by being a part of the co-living network. Um, and we think co-living is great because uh, we can do a couple things differently than, you know, you might find when you're just like going to live in an urban area, you know, which is, is what we're typically competing with is like somebody who just wants to like live in a city around other great people. Um, so first of all, we're, you know, a kind of classic cabin neighborhood location is maybe an hour outside of a city, you know, uh, an hour or less from an airport, close to nature, has great internet, has a strong community. And so you kind of get the best of all worlds. You get the um, access to nature, um, you know, you get the uh, ability to be around other wonderful humans like you might want in a city. Um, but you can also do that in locations that um, are you know, less expensive and have lower regulatory hurdles to operate. And so our real long-term goal here is to build out these communities that have better amenities than you'd find in a city at a lower cost. And um, not only that, you also don't have to sign, you know, some year-long lease that you're locked into. You have more flexibility. You can do it on a month-to-month -month basis and you're not stuck in one location. You can travel around to different places in the network. You're going to find a home wherever you go because there's shared culture, um, you know, across locations. But you're also going to find novel experiences and novel groups of people in different locations. This is I, this is so exciting to me because this is the sort of thing that I've like 
you know, like talked about the possibility of with with friends before COVID, you know, as as a long time digital nomad myself, this is the sort of thing that we dreamed about, right? Like a digital nomad native way of of living because at the moment we as a community, and even though like I call myself a digital nomad, I'm spending more and more time in each location, but nonetheless, I move every six months or so, right? And we currently have to use the infrastructure that is almost aged and it's 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 built for, you know, like Airbnb, which is realistically just like, hey, come in here and stay for three days, you know, instead of a hotel. We're now taking the idea of it and and its original purpose and essentially almost like Frankensteining it in a way to work for our intentions. And that's not what it was built for. And that's why, you know, it was something that started out to be very, very cheap. Now it's very expensive. People are constantly talking about the negative effects it's having on cities and the locals living there. At the same time, nomads are not happy about it because they're paying, you know, crazy prices. Now they're looking for other options. And this idea, whether this is the final version that ends up becoming the solution or it's V1 of the like final version that kind of is that digital nomad native type of living it's just it's so exciting. I think uh, I think it's it's incredible. So you said that you're in neighborhood zero right now. Obviously, this is still a relatively new project and and endeavor. Are there other neighborhoods right now, or is this the only one that you're working on? Yeah, there are other neighborhoods. Um, we're trying to grow very intentionally, um, and I think one thing that is a, a clear failure mode for community centric projects is trying to grow too fast or you know, as too much of a monolith. And so we're very intentional about growing in this, um, this way where we have autonomous pockets of neighborhoods. And we're also very intentional about only bringing in neighborhoods that are a really great fit for our community. Um, so currently there are, are um, three active cabin neighborhoods as well as some additional pilots that we've been running. So I, I can talk about a few of those examples. Um, maybe the, the best example I can provide of um, you know one of our neighborhoods that has been operating a co-living experience is Montaya Base Camp, which is this incredible property in the Eastern Sierra, um, which you know uh, is in California. Um, it's on the sort of backside. There's there's two sets of mountains um, and this valley in between them. It's typically been a pretty hard area to um, access, but uh, you can now fly directly into Bishop, California, which is in that valley. It's about a 20-minute drive to Montaya, and you're directly up in the in some of the most beautiful mountains in the world. Um, I was just up there last month. Um, we have an amazing caretaker at that property. Her name's Kayla, and she's been running an intentional living community there um, and also running incredible backpacking trips and other adventures out of this base camp into the wilderness uh, of these mountains. I had the pleasure of going with a group of cabin folks on a backpacking expedition into the um, Eastern Sierra and into the backside of Yosemite just a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was just such a, a wonderful experience to be out in nature and then, you know, come off the trail um, and be able to hop back on a flight to San Francisco. Um so, so that's the sort of property that we think makes it for a really great place and the sort of caretaker and environment that uh, makes for a great cabin community. We, you know, we have to find these places and, and um, 
there are certainly you know many in the world, but um, they're they're not always easy to find, and uh, we also want to help create more of them. And so, um, you know, over the past few weeks, and, and even actually right now, we're running some more pilots with additional potential neighborhoods that we're interested in bringing into the network. So, I was just talking earlier with, today. I was um, uh, called in for a session with a, a group of folks who are doing an experience on a little island in Greece. Um, as we speak, uh, that, you know, we're hopeful is going to evolve into a cabin neighborhood. Um, you know, we also, over the past few weeks, have been running build weeks in uh, at a place in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, that that's another very good fit for the type of environment that we want to grow into. Um, we have some longer term projects in the works, including a pretty exciting uh, long term development uh, that we're working on in Portugal. Um, and so, you know, we, we're trying to be intentional about how we grow, but we certainly would like to develop this uh, global network. So are these neighborhoods in any way, like, paying to the mothership, right? So if you have, like, the decentralized city and you have these different nodes as neighborhoods, do they pass something back onto, like, the, the decentralized city as an organization in order to continue investing in possible new neighborhoods or anything like that? Yeah, so we're, we're still in the process of figuring out, um, you know, the, the business model that makes the most sense for our community. Um, we certainly want, you know, we, we want to build a sustainable organization um, at, at all scales, right? We want each neighborhood to be self-sustaining. We want the cabin network to be self-sustaining. Um, and so we're, we're still in the process of figuring out exactly how that works. Um, but I think the co-living pass is a pretty clear example of, um, you know, so, something that can make this possible where uh, we can essentially have um, part of the revenue uh, from that, you know, go back to reinvesting in building out the network. So when you're talking about these different neighborhoods popping up, are they, I'm, I'm curious about the order of operation when they're being built. Is this something that other folks have started, they get to someplace and they find out about cabin and they reach out to you to get some sort of like support or like the infrastructure and operations that you've developed? Or is it people with an idea who come to you and say, hey, I think this place would be amazing. Here's kind of like the vision. Can you offer me support in order to go out there and build it out? Like how does, what is the, what is the order there? Yeah. So we're interested in working with projects kind of anywhere uh, across that life cycle that are going to be a great fit for our community. So, you know, that, that includes everything from uh, places like Montaya that were already fully operational locations before joining the cabin network um, to folks on the other side of the spectrum who, um, you know, just have a dream of what they want to build um, and we can help them with that process. And so we, we've, um, you know, partnered with, with folks uh, to help them understand everything from the details of the co-buying process, how you bring together a squad of people, how you structure that, um, you know, how you actually go out and find the right property, how you start building stuff on it. Uh, one of the things that we like doing most at Cabin is building things. And so we host build weeks like the one I was describing in Puerto Rico. We'll be doing another one out here at Neighborhood Zero in a couple of weeks where members of the community can actually come out and um, 
you know, contribute to building a project together. Um, and so, it, it, you know, you, you mentioned Airbnb earlier. I think uh, both from the perspective of the neighborhoods and from the perspective of the residents, what we have heard time and time again is that people are interested in more than just a financial transaction. Um, and what we try to provide is that, um, you know, definancialized container in which community building really thrives and try to help people um, come together, you know, not only get those properties off the ground, but then um, tap into our network to help build out those properties, to bring them into the co-living network, to have uh, residents come in and be a part of what they're building. Um, and so anywhere you are in that life cycle, you know, if your values and, and vibe aligned with, with uh, the cabin community, then we're excited to help you out. So the URL for cabin is creatorcabins.com. You talk about being, you know, focused on the creator economy and, and really working with, with creators. Why focus on that specific group of people? Uh, as opposed to just being like for anyone that is interested in in this sort of living. Yeah. So first of all, fun uh, uh, announcement: we've actually just um, acquired a new domain, um, and so you're right. Our our domain has been creatorcabins.com. You can now also check us out at cabin city. Um, Ooh. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, cabin city. You you heard it here first. Um, and that website is actually just now live. Uh, so, um, but but to answer your question about you know creators, um, I I spent you know about six years at Instacart, and my primary focus at Instacart was building for Instacart shoppers, the gig workers who shop and deliver groceries on the platform. Um, and through the process of doing that. I spent a lot of time thinking about the gig economy um, and ultimately came to the conclusion that the sort of forces that were operating within the gig economy were going to start becoming much more prevalent across um, the economy as a whole. And, uh, you know, one one sort of way to think about this is there's a, a great economics paper ended up winning a um, Nobel Prize uh, by a guy named Ronald Coase. Uh, who I believe you're you're a fan of, uh, and it, it's um, called the nature of the firm, and it sort of makes the case for why companies exist in the first place. And the explanation for why companies exist is transaction costs. That basically, if you if everybody was just to be an independent contractor, um, you'd have too many contracts that you have to deal with. Um, and it would just create a lot of overhead. And so people created companies so that you can sort of get a group of people together and not have to worry about having a contract every time you want to do everything. Um, and what you know we saw with the gig economy uh, that, that's now happening more broadly within the economy is that declining transaction costs are changing the nature of the firm. And that now instead of contracts um, that look like big legal documents that a bunch of lawyers have to go back and forth and do redlining on, um, you can just have an app that shows you, you know, hey, here's a, um, a grocery delivery route and what you need to pick up at the store and here's how much it pays, you know, click a button to accept. And that is much lower transaction costs, much lower friction. Um, and it became evident to me that 
um, that was going to matter a lot to the world, but also that it was going to cause the commodification of labor. And um, so I became very interested in the creator economy and in uh, investing in the creator economy and building in the creator economy because I saw that as a path towards the decommodification of labor and the ability for individuals to use those same tools um, that create low transaction costs, but to use them in ways that result in um, their unique contributions to the world, having direct access to customers. And so when I left Instacart, uh, one of the first things that I worked on was a group called the Creator Co-op, which was a group of independent online creators um, from across a bunch of different disciplines who were all interested in learning how to make money independently online. And that's the group that initially seeded what became Cabin. Mm. Yeah, I uh, that paper in reading it, the thing that I kind of realized was, and it was something that I already like had a gut feeling about. I was kind of seeing play out in the marketplace, but I didn't have the backing of someone who had sat down and said, Hey, here's like the actual, uh, you know, like, like what's going on here behind the scenes and kind of explaining in that way. And anyone who's worked with me or anyone that I've coached knows that I bring up this paper because the way that I see it. And the reason why I think it's so important is that you know, you like you said, you need to have these big companies in order to execute things because it was so expensive to work with outside forces or to like work with outside contractors. Now it's so easy to plug and play, you know, freelancers and contractors wherever needed. So companies can actually become smaller, run with a very small team and a whole bunch of automations on the side. And then when needed, there's like a big project for which you don't have the skills or whatever it is. You're bringing contractors who are so easy to just plug into the uh, your ecosystem. And then once a project is done, leave, because not only is it less expensive, it's also less expensive in terms of, you know, like think about how hard it must have been back in the day to work with contracts. Like you have to take them, you fly them out to your HQ. Maybe they had to set up shop for several months. Maybe their families had to move out. Now it's so easy to do that. And so uh, I, I, I think this is very, and I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's very exciting about where this is headed. Uh, you talked a little bit about, you just mentioned investing in these sort of cities. So before we sort of wrap up, because we're running out of time and I've only touched on a third of the questions that I, that I wanted to ask you, but can you touch a little bit about capital community and, and how you're actually investing, it sounds like, in some of these projects outside of Cabin? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when, when I left Instacart, um, I wanted to cast a pretty wide net and explore a bunch of different paths before really settling into where I wanted to focus. And the thing I ended up, you know, really pouring all of my time into was cabin. Um, but before I got there, um, you know, I was exploring a lot of paths around uh, investing in this um, kind of emerging creator economy uh, infrastructure as well. And so um, I, I still do both personally, um, you know, via capital community, um, as well as, as you mentioned, uh, through the Carrot Angels Syndicate, which invests in the um, Instacart alumni community, and uh, as an advisor for Seed Club Ventures, which is one of the leading venture funds investing in um, online communities as well. Uh, and my theses are, you know, if you go to capital.community, you can see the theses, but they're pretty straightforward. It's basically, um, you know, how, how do we think about 
uh, the core infrastructure that these communities need? And then how do we think about what the most important uh, online communities that are going to be unlocked by that infrastructure are? So that includes um, you know, everything from marketplaces for independent work, tools for creating and distributing content, community management and monetization tools, um, educational communities, uh, and then of course, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And so, um, you know, I think I, one of the most important things you can do as a, a small fry uh, angel investor like myself is really try to focus your thesis on something where you have unique insight and can add unique value. And this was an area that um, stuck out to me as something that, where I would be able to do that. So I've been able to partner with and make investments in a number of um, of companies and DAOs and other types of organizations across those categories that I just mentioned. Yeah, maybe we can uh, do a follow-up episode uh, about how to actually do that because that sounds so exciting to me. There's so many projects out there that are just getting started in you know in in this space and in the work from anywhere space that I'm sure people listening to this are very interested in. Like, how do I get involved? How do I invest in this? How do I play and and help these things uh, come together? So I'd be very curious to hear about how to actually put that together. But uh, we're running out of time and I want to be respectful uh, of your time since you got you got things to build. And I want to wrap up uh, with, you know, like one final question, which is what is, you know, when you think about Cabin in, in the next like 20 years, I know there's obviously that's a lot of time and there's a lot of things that could happen, but what is kind of like your vision? Like when you close your eyes and imagine what Cabin of 20 years from now looks like, what what comes up? Like what is the vision there? Yeah, so it, it, I'm really glad you you asked this question to close. Um, I actually don't view 20 years as a long time horizon at all. We're building a city here, and these things can take hundreds of years. And so, um, you know, we sort of like to half joke and half not joke that our cabin roadmap goes through the year 2525. Uh, and so, we're actually operating more on a 500 year uh, time horizon. And um, I think that's a really important thing for us to do uh, as humanity at this point in time. There's a great concept from uh, Stuart Brand called Pace Layers. Stuart Brand's the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog. And um, the idea of Pace Layers is, is basically that um, there's all of these different layers of civilization that move at different speeds. And we tend to get caught up in the really fast moving layers like fashion and commerce, but um, a lot of the more valuable uh, layers to think about are layers like infrastructure and governance and culture. And that's really what we're focused on at Tabin. And those are things that don't move quickly. And, um, you know, particularly with, um, with global climate change and with a lot of the um, complexity that the world is facing right now, we need to figure out how to think on longer time horizons and how to reset our um, our thinking towards some of those deeper pace layers to make sure that we're building a civilization that can last for a really long time. And so uh, 20 years to me feels like we're, we're just getting started. Um, you know, maybe maybe 200 years is, is the horizon we like to think on, or even 500 years. And, um, you know, on, on uh, the 20 year time horizon, though, just to 
actually answer your question. Yeah, I um, want to know. You know. I, I totally agree with you on the long time horizon, but I want to know what I yeah. can put my hands on. Like, I want to see what I can experience totally. and so on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and this is, is what's fun about Cabin is we like to think on a 500-year time horizon, but we like to operate on like a, you know, five minute or hour or day time horizon. And, um, you know, like I said, five hours ago, I was was uh, out looking at where we're going to dig some trenches. So we, we try to keep it really real. I actually think in some ways, 20 years is is uh, one of the harder time horizons because um, there's a great Bill Gates quote, I believe, that's something like, you know, people tend to overestimate how much can get done in one year or five years and underestimate how much can get done in, in 10 or 20 years. Um, and so w- when I think about the 10 to 20 year time horizon, um, you know, I, I'm, I've pulled up our, our roadmap right now, the 500 year one. And um, where I think we start to get to on that kind of time horizon is uh, growing beyond the number of neighborhoods where we can um, you know, operate this as a relatively loose, high trust network and start getting into a really interesting territory where we need better protocols um, for operating the network. And so, you know, I would hope at that point we have hundreds of neighborhoods and thousands of residents and um, that we need to have much more scalable protocols like our neighborhood catalog that we're using for um you know, vetting and accepting new neighborhoods and uh, making sure that we're balancing the combination of um, horizontal scale uh, across a bunch of neighborhoods with the ability for those neighborhoods to have interoperable vibe checks and make sure that, um, you know, on a cultural level, they uh, still both have their own local cultures and have the ability to incorporate uh, and cross-pollinate cultures across neighborhoods that from an economic level, we start to see um, the a, a network of service providers for neighborhoods emerge. You could imagine things like, you know, some of the things around financing, property identification, community building, real estate development, other services that start to emerge across the network. Um, and then from a governance layer that we have a really battle-tested protocol for uh, collectively governing who gets to be a part of this network, what what neighborhoods we're bringing in, what standards we're setting for them. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that in 10 or 20 years, all of that stuff is uh, pretty well-baked and uh, operating in a way where, um, you know, I, I certainly don't need to be involved in it anymore. Uh, all of the kind of original core team members are probably long gone, and we are really operating as this, um, you know, organization that has a lot of local autonomy and a lot of uh, resiliency. I I love it. Uh, this is this is also exciting uh, to me, uh, and it you know sort of in in wrapping up, I want to ask you uh, if anyone's listening to this that's as stoked about this idea as I am, that's as interested in this as I am, how can they get involved? First of all, like what, like where can they go to learn more? But also what are you like, are you looking for people to come help? What are sort of like the the things that you're interested in, like the people that you're interested in bringing on to help you out? And again, where can they go to learn more about that? And of course, where can they connect with you online? Yeah. So you can uh, check out our website at cabin.city. Um, you can follow us on social at creator cabins. Um, 
And, you know, the, the really big opportunities here are just to come join our community, which means uh, coming and joining our virtual community in Discord and, and ideally also joining our IRL community, coming um, and co-living with us, uh, participating in this network that we're building, coming out for a build week, um, coming out for a longer term stay, or if you're feeling particularly ambitious, uh, starting a new neighborhood. And those are really the ways to, you know, get involved and um, to help build towards this vision that we're all collectively pursuing. That's amazing. Uh, well, John, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, a ton of fun, and I really, really look forward to seeing all the things that you guys do over there at Cabin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. Yeah.